So as I mentioned in the outset, this is the, has been called the backbone of prophecy, this uh, prophetic uh, 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapters, uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is where we get, if you ever wondered, where we get the idea of a last seven-year period of time. Uh, you've heard it uh, perhaps called the tribulation period. I would say more accurately, it should be called Daniel's 70th week. And it comes from this section of scripture that we're going to study tonight. So if you've ever heard a pastor, he's in Revelation, and he's talking about a last seven-year period and three and a half years, there's the abomination of desolation. Where does that come from? Well, that really comes from Daniel 9, 24 through 27. But then there's also some other places, especially in Revelation, that talk about 1,260 days, which is half the seven years, or three and a half years, or a time, times, and a half a time. So if you've heard things like that before, just know that the seven-year idea does come from this prophecy tonight. We're going to dig that out uh, as we study it. For prophecy, it is not a possibility, it is a certainty. When we talk about predictive prophecy, we are talking about God writing history in advance. And I do believe that there is a near-far fulfillment to the prophecy we're going to study tonight. I believe that the near portion is the first coming of the Messiah. And there are those, including Chuck Missler and others, that believe that based upon Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince, that was written, I think, in the late 1800s, and some other calculations done by other uh, experts and prophecy buffs that uh, to the day... This, this prophecy gives to the very day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem presenting himself as the king of Israel. You would recall that in the Gospels when Jesus uh, was doing miracles or when they wanted to make him king by force, he would withdraw. But the one time that he really made himself known by getting on that colt, the foal of a donkey, and fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 and presenting himself as the king of Israel is on what we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, that's also in here tonight. The far fulfillment, and there are those that do believe this prophecy is fulfilled in the first century, and especially uh, culminating in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, there are others that believe that it has a far fulfillment into the final week, the final seven-year period, which we would call Daniel's 70th week, where we learn about the Antichrist, the tribulation, the wrath of God, and all of that. But what we will say about this prophecy is that, that it does focus very much on the coming deliverer, Jesus Christ. And that was really what Daniel was concerned about. He was wondering about his people. He was wondering about the future of Israel. He had uh, come across or somehow uh, got the scrolls of Jeremiah. He had discovered that there was a 70-year captivity that had been prophesied and written about by Jeremiah. He now realized, based upon the markers of his own day, time markers, that he was at the end of that time, and he was wondering, well, now what's going to happen to Israel? What's going to happen to my people and my homeland? That is the focus. So that's, that's the beginning. Daniel 9.20 is the first verse for tonight. Daniel 9.20. Now, while I was speaking... Daniel is now recording his own thoughts here. Now, I will, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God 
in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Now Daniel's continuing his prayer time as this is recorded in inspired scripture. Daniel says, I was speaking, I was praying, and I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Now I mentioned to you that even though Daniel lives an exemplary life and takes major stands throughout several different regimes in world history, Daniel was still a sinner. The Bible says there is no one who does not sin in the Old Testament. I think that's in 1st or 2nd Kings. In Romans, we know it says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So as good of a man as Daniel was, he still was a sinner. And he had to confess his own sin. Whenever we are in prayer, we know that Jesus taught us to ask the Lord to forgive us our debts as we forgive what? Our debtors or those who have sinned against us. So a normal part of our prayer life should be confession of sin. In fact, earlier in the chapter, I didn't mention this uh, when we went through the, the prayer, but earlier in the chapter, Daniel exhausts, I believe, every Hebrew word that can be used for sin earlier in the chapter. This is what we've done wrong. We've transgressed, we've sinned, and so forth. So Daniel is really kind of uh, laying out the blanket of what Israel has done to end up in the place that they've ended up, which is Babylonian captivity under the uh, disciplinary hand of God. And so Daniel says, I was speaking, I was praying, I was confessing my sin, confessing the sin of my people Israel, acting as an intercessor. You and I can confess the sin of our people in the United States. We can confess the sins of our people in our city. We can say, Lord, I'm sorry for babies that have been killed under abortion laws or anything else that God may burden your heart. You can act as an intercessor. I was presenting my supplication. To supplicate there means to intercede. I was doing it before the Lord my God. Notice he is my God. He is my shepherd. And Daniel says I was doing it in behalf of the holy mountain. That would be Mount Zion. That would be the temple mount. Um, if you ever see a picture of Israel and specifically Jerusalem, and you can see where the golden domed mosque is that sits there right now, Somewhere in that area is Mount Zion. And so Jerusalem, literally, the Temple Mount especially, is up on a mountain. You always go up to Jerusalem. And so Mount Zion is really, or the Holy Mountain here, is another name for Jerusalem or the area where the Temple was. So the Holy Mountain of my God. Uh, the focus here of the prayer and the prophecy is on the people of Israel. And so uh, it may be that Daniel was praying this prayer. If you look at uh, Daniel 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent. Flip back to Daniel 6, 1 for a second. Daniel 6, 1. This is the lion's den chapter. It seemed good to Darius, 6, 1, to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. I was listening to another teacher teach on this, and he was saying that it may be that the lion's den situation when Daniel was praying three times a day with his windows open towards what? Towards Jerusalem, because that's where his heart was. Uh, it may be the same time frame that we're dealing with here. So Daniel's prayer life was very much uh, centered around the people of Israel, the homeland, but it may have had a more, even a more sense of urgency during the king's decree that you couldn't pray for 30 days 
except to anybody but him. So it may be that when he got caught praying in Daniel 6, we're in the same time. And Daniel refused not to pray because there was so much at stake, but I think he would have prayed either way. And we do find out that Daniel prayed three times a day. Now, in the Jewish worship around the temple, there were three main times of prayer. Nine in the morning, noon, and three in the afternoon. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And it would seem that Daniel continued that prayer time despite the fact that there was no more temple and he was out of the homeland. I heard Alistair Begg said, say, you can take the man out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of the man. And so he had patterns in his life that he had developed early on. And those patterns remained his even in Babylon, even in a foreign land. So it doesn't matter where you may end up geographically, you can still be true to your God because he is everywhere present and he hears our prayers. But to this one will I look, Isaiah 66, 2 says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Daniel is a picture of this type of person. He is praying, he is humble, he is contrite, he is trembling before the word of God, namely Jeremiah's teaching. Verse 21, back in Daniel 9. And so, he says, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man, we know he's an angel, but he appears as a man, Gabriel. Just a side note, every time an angel does appear, he appears as a man. Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer are masculine. Now, I do know that we see, that if we go to a store and we see those little trinkets, uh, oftentimes they are presented, angels are presented as what? Female. And I'm not here to rock the boat unnecessarily. So that's all I'm going to say. Because cause I've learned wisdom over the years. But I thought it would be worth pointing out that when angels are actually named in the Bible, they are masculine. I leave it there. So this, this man... Uh, or angel, we know he appears in the book of Luke, and we'll talk about that in a moment, whom I had seen in the vision previously. He appeared in chapter 8, came to me, says Daniel, in my extreme weariness, we're at the end of verse 21, about the time of the evening offering. Now, the time of the evening offering was what? Three in the afternoon. So Daniel, keeping those times of prayer, he's praying in the afternoon, and Gabriel shows up, at, at about the time of the evening offering. I'm trying to recall, but when Zacharias is in the temple, I think it's at one of the offering times that he shows up to Zacharias. Uh, you can check me on that, but I think that's the case. Or We know he's serving in the temple. And so Daniel says, he came to me, notice, in my extreme weariness. Daniel was a tired man. And it reminds me, I was thinking, you know, Prayer is a privilege, but prayer is also hard work. <laughs> prayer can be especially wearying if we are bringing burdens to the Lord. Amen? So sometimes, you know, we may pray over a meal, or it may be a little bit more, you could call it, you know, not heavy things that we're praying about, and so it's not, it's not wearying. It can even, you know, prayer can definitely be refreshing. But when you are burdened with something, let's say that you are, you are, supplicating, you're praying for somebody that's ill. Or maybe you have a burden for the country. Or maybe you have a burden for a marriage that's in trouble. Or whatever it may be. Sometimes 
you can be wearied in prayer. And that's not a bad way to get wearied, right? Is to pray. And Daniel felt the burden. I think he was feeling the burden of the captivity, the burden of what was going to happen to his people. And, you know, the Lord says, cast your burdens to me. So what I try to do when I'm praying, even if I've got, you know, 15 things that I'm concerned about, and believe me, as a pastor, I hear uh, a lot of the ugly side of life. You know, I, I, I come across a lot of issues and problems and things. And, and if I were to carry all those burdens for myself, I would be done in about a couple of hours. So I have to cast those burdens for you and for me to the Lord because I can't carry them and I can't fix them. And so I got I to gotta bring them to the one who can do something about it. And I would encourage you, for those of you who carry the weight of other people's problems, to just know that God says, cast your cares to me, right? He invites you to do that. That's a wonderful invitation. I don't have very many people that are asking me to give them my worries, right? You know, Pastor Michael, just tell me all your problems. I'll, I'll carry them for you. So, but the Lord does do that. And Daniel was extremely weary. And I think that's just part of being human is sometimes we just get tired. In Mark 1.13, when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, it says he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him, Mark 1.13. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying the night before he's crucified, he went a stone's throw away, he knelt down and began to pray. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Luke 22.43 says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him strengthening him and hebrews 1 14 says of angels are they angels not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation who's going to inherit salvation you and so angels are involved in the ministry of the church today i don't know how all that works i have one angel story that i've told you guys in the past at least i think it could have been an angel um I was a young Christian. For those of you who haven't heard this before, I was asked to share my testimony many, many years ago, and I was wrestling with just simply walking with the Lord. I had a foot in the world and a foot in Christ. And so my, my wardrobe consisted of tight T-shirts and those old bike coaches shorts. You remember those things? They were way too short. I don't know why guys wore them. I don't know why I wore them. I've burned the pictures where uh, I'm seen in those. In fact, I had a pair of white ones, which was even worse. But anyway, so I went up to the pulpit, and there was this little church in Orange, and, and I said, hey, folks, uh, my name's Michael, and I tried to clean up my life this week so I could talk to you guys. And there was kind of a giggle out in the congregation, but I think it was a bit refreshing to them that I was honest, that my life was a bit of a, of a disaster. And so I was done speaking, and I had talked about faith in Christ and what he was doing in my life, and I was in the little foyer, and a woman came up to me and said, oh, I wish my son were like you. And I, and I thought to myself, lady, if you only know what I've been up to and where I've been, you wouldn't say that. Well, I turned, and there was a lot of people around, and all of a sudden a man grabbed me by the hand. He had red hair, kind of a auburn hair with a, with a beard, and he gave me one of those handshakes where he wouldn't let go, and he was looking almost into my soul like Paul Hicks does, if you've ever experienced that before. He looked into my soul and he said to me, you can help a lot of people. 
and he wouldn't let my hand go, and it kind of got a little uncomfortable, and then he released my hand, and I talked to somebody else, and I looked around, and that guy was gone, and I never saw him again, and I had never seen him at the church before. I don't know. I like to think that that's my angel story. Do angels have beards and red hair? I, I don't know, but anyway. But I tell you what, it was a pivotal moment for me in terms of my life, and uh, the trajectory that God would take me. And that wasn't the only moment where I felt like the Lord was really saying to me, Michael, I want to use you, but I want you to decide to follow me and follow me fully. So in Daniel's weariness, Gabriel shows up and Gabriel comes to him. And of course, we know Gabriel is going to uh, give him insight and understanding, which I think was really with the burden that was on Daniel's heart. Look at verse 22. And so it says, he gave me, Gabriel gave me, Daniel, instruction, 22, and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Now it just struck me to know that God knows my name, he knows your name, he knows when we're praying, and I think it's a beautiful thing. Remember, Daniel's name Together, Dan is a tribe of Israel, and Dan means judge, and the E-L ending means is God, the word L, E-L. So Daniel's name means God is my judge, when you put it together in Hebrew. And I was telling the guys this weekend that um, the word for judge in Hebrew thought is not God is my judge in the sense that he wears a black gown with a gavel behind a mahogany bench ready to pass a sentence on me. In Hebrew thought, the idea of God is my judge is more God is my defender and protector. In fact, in the Bible, we have a book called the Book of Judges. And judges, like Samson in Israel, were selected by God to defend and protect the nation. And really, they were those who preceded the kings of Israel. So you read the Book of Judges, and that kind of precedes the time when Saul and David come, and they are kings of Israel. And so when Daniel's name is translated, the Lord is my judge, it, it could mean ultimately that I'm going to answer to God, and it does mean that, but it also has the nuance of God as my defender and protector. You might want to write down, if you're interested in digging this out a little bit more, Psalm 68, verse 5, where it says that God is the judge of widows and orphans. Psalm 68, verse 5. There in that verse, it's talking about the meaning of, that God is the protector and defender of orphans and widows, though it uses the word judge. So that's what I'm talking about. I think that Daniel's name can have that meaning, that God, and of course it applies to us, because Jesus is our defender and protector in heaven, and he's our Lord and our Savior. So, oh Daniel, he knows my name. How many of you remember that song, He Knows My Name, He Knows My Every Thought? Uh, that was a beautiful song. I think it was somewhere in the 90s. I remember it being at a Harvest Crusade, and uh, that song was being played by, was it Tommy? Um, was it? But it was, there's another Tommy that was a worship leader. I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, but they, they were playing that song, and it was really ministering to everybody because it was showing that God is a personal God. You know, uh, sometimes it seems like in a million faces we ask the question, does God really know me? as an individual. Does he know my name? Does he care about, you know, what I go through? And the truth of the matter is that God knows you as a person. As an individual, he loves you. He knows your struggles. 
If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So, of course, he knows you personally. And Daniel was weary. Isaiah 50, verse 4 says of the Messiah, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. I certainly realize that sometimes you guys come in here and you're weary. I know that. Uh, I know you have tough days, tough weeks, tough months. I know some of you have difficult situations and questions. And my prayer for you is that when you come in here, that some of the words that come out from the scriptures encourage you in your weariness. You're not all weary, but some of you are. And the Bible can do that for you. And so the angel begins to, to, to address Daniel after he says to Daniel that, he says in verse 21, O Daniel, he says, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, NIV, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. The moment that you began to pray, an answer was coming forth. God knows our thoughts before we think them, our prayers before we pray them. But in some way, God also uses our prayers as a means to his ends or to fulfill his will. And so Daniel is praying, and in response to that prayer, but of course under the sovereignty of God, the big theme of the book of Daniel, a command was issued. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. And of course, the way this answer was going to be given was an angel was dispatched to give the answer to Daniel. I've come to tell you, middle of the verse, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. If an angel tells Daniel that he is highly esteemed, where do you think he may be highly esteemed? I think in heaven. Daniel, some of the versions say, you are greatly beloved, which is beautiful. Uh, Daniel was highly esteemed in heaven. If you have a New Living Translation, it says you are very precious to God. And I, I wonder about that as an individual, like, you know, how would one gain esteem in heaven? Heaven becomes, as you study your Bible, a synonym for God. So if you're greatly beloved or highly esteemed, I mean, that, that speaks volumes. So I know your name, Daniel. God's heard your prayers. And by the way, you are highly esteemed in heaven. <laughs> There's nowhere else I'd like to be highly esteemed, right? Amen? Than in heaven itself. That's what we should be shooting for. We, we worry so much about what other people think of us, but ultimately, you know, my audience really is an audience of one, and I want him to be pleased with what I do, how I preach, how I live. And Daniel was that kind of man. We know he wasn't a perfect man, 1 Kings 8.46 says there's no man who does not sin. He was confessing his sin. But I even think that God appreciates that. I think God appreciates honesty. I think God appreciates transparency. By the way, you're not pulling the wool over the eyes of the shepherd anyway if you hold things back in prayer. Or if you try to update him on current events. I'm not sure if you knew this about me, Lord. But uh, I, ha I have some weaknesses in this area. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. That's not the case. Transparency, especially before God, can be very freeing. And so Daniel is addressed, and he says, you're greatly beloved, 
So here's the message. I know you've been burdened for your people. I know you've been burdened about what's going to happen. And I've come to give you the answer. This is an awesome insight, but the moment Daniel prayed, heaven was enlisted. And later in our Bibles, we read that Gabriel has a habit of doing this kind of thing, of showing up. He shows up to Zacharias in Luke 1.19 and to Mary in Luke 1.26. And in both cases, in Luke 1.19, he's announcing or giving the annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist. And in Luke 1.26, he tells Mary that she's going to have a son. And interestingly enough, there's about 500 years that separate this moment when this word is given to Daniel and those annunciations, maybe a little less than that, actually a little bit more than that. But let's just call it about 500 years. It's interesting that Gabriel got to announce the prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy, which does speak of the first coming of Jesus, and then got to be there to speak to the people who are actually going to be the vehicles to bring forth the Messiah. Isn't that cool? I'm, I'm sure Gabriel was saying, Lord, how long is it going to be until I can meet Mary and give her the announcement of the coming? Well, it's going to be about 500 years. Wow, 500 years. But maybe on angel time, that's nothing. I don't know. <laughs> and so I've come to give you understanding. You're very precious to God. And I just want to tell you, saints, that Many times in the New Testament, it calls us the beloved of God. For God so loved the world. Paul says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. So you are greatly loved in heaven. That's why God sent his son for you. To make sure that you would be in heaven as a co-heir of Jesus Christ. You are greatly loved in heaven. Sometimes it's hard to get our arms around that one, right? especially in our days when we're not doing so great. But God loved us, and he demonstrated that love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God put his love on display at that cross. So here's the prophecy. Seventy weeks, as Gabriel addresses Daniel, literally 70 sevens, that's a unit of seven, have been decreed or determined for your people, that's Israel, your holy city, that's Jerusalem. Now, there are six things that we're going to see that have been decreed for Jerusalem in this 70 weeks prophecy. See the word weeks there? It's a Hebrew word called Shabua. S-H-A-B-U-A. Shabua. It means a period of seven. It could be days, years, weeks, but because Daniel has been focusing on the 70 years of captivity and because of the way that this uh, prophecy sets up, most scholars hold that this is years, weeks of years. So 70 weeks or 77s is the literal translation have been decreed. The Hebrew word is actually the word seven or a group or a unit. Or more accurately, you could say a group of seven something. And so it is a group of seven years is the conclusion of most scholars. Now, th the, this is a suggestion of an outline of the prophecy. In verse 24, you get the scope of the entire prophecy. In verse 25, you get 69 weeks that are talked about. In verse 26, you get an interval between the 69th and 70th week. The 70th week, remember, is the last seven years that we've talked about. And then we'll get the 70th week in verse 27. So let's look at it in the NIV. 
Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, your holy city. Six things. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The word for decreed there is katak in Hebrew. It means this has been determined, it's been settled, it's been marked out. Jesus Christ in Acts 2, 23, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. When Jesus died, he died on the Passover. He rose, he was buried, uh, and then rose on feast days. According to God's calendar, Jesus was on God's clock when he came here. The amount of ministry time that he would serve, the, when he would show up at certain feasts and so forth, all part of God's plan, God's daytimer or calendar. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Scholars say the fullness of time means when the time was exactly right, God sent forth his Son. He already had a plan, and he was going to fulfill that plan. And by the way, he has a plan for your life, and he's going to fulfill that plan as well. And so they, these are the things that are going to go on and they have to do with the people of Israel. I want you to turn to um, Isaiah. Just a little, a few books before Daniel. Isaiah 43. Turn to Isaiah 43. In Exodus 4.22, it says that Israel is my son, my firstborn. This prophecy, by the way, gives us further evidence, Isaiah 43, that God is not done with the actual nation of Israel. And we do know that it is a big deal that Israel returned to the land in 48, recaptured Jerusalem in 1967, and has plans to rebuild a temple, at least plans among some of the people of Israel. For those of you, who, how many of you went to Israel with us in March? All right, we went to a place called the Temple Institute. In the Temple Institute, we saw a bunch of the implements for the temple that have already been built and are prepared. They are training priests for temple sacrifice. They've been able to track down priests by the last name of the individuals and those who are, uh, maybe you've seen programs where people are feeling like maybe they're Jewish and they're getting their DNA tested and people are flocking back to Israel. There is a place called the Temple Institute. We were just there where you can see the menorah. You can see the different uh, pots and things for the temple. And so this is happening right now. I don't know what the time frame will be, but I'll tell you, we are closer than we've ever been before. God's heart for Israel, unmistakable throughout the whole Bible, but listen to Isaiah 43, look at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, Isaiah 43, 1, Your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. We can think of some scenes in the book of Daniel. Nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. 
since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and God says, and I love you. And I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And so back to Daniel, the Babylonian captivity was prophesied for the people of Israel. They were coming to the end of the 70 years. Uh, If you're interested in noting this, the Babylonian captivity was based on the fact that they were not honoring the Sabbaths and letting the land rest. If you want to do more study on this idea, Look at Leviticus 25, 1 through 22. Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 35. And Deuteronomy 15. You can also see the idea of the years there as well. And so the 70 years were a punishment from God. And now it was coming to the end. So six things. I'll mention them again in verse 24 of Daniel 9. When this all happens, transgression is to be finished. There will be an end of sin. Atonement for sin is to be made. Everlasting righteousness to be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up. And the most holy, it either could be the temple or the most holy one, the uh, Messiah, is to be anointed. These six things are at the center of the prophecy. I do believe that the most holy being anointed is the Messiah because the Messiah is at the center of verse 25. And the Messiah is going to be the one that accomplishes much of what is in verse 24. And so this is a prophecy. Number one, the prophecy says it will finish transgression or make an end of sin. Whose sin? Who's the subject of the prophecy? Israel. What's the problem for Israel today? Unbelief. The nation of Israel, though some are orthodox and some are religious, uh, even those who are orthodox and religious deny that Jesus is the Messiah. I was uh, at the Western Wall, and that's the place where you can see the Jews go there with their prayer books, and they're they're bobbing, and they're praying for the nation. And I went under uh, a part of the wall, and I got to speak to a young man who's studying to be a rabbi. And he's from Connecticut. <laughs> and I think he was maybe 21. And so he's doing a crash course on rabbi preparation. And so I said, well, he goes, who are you guys? And I said, well, we're, we're Christians and we, we've come to visit the Holy Land and we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> and he kind of smiled and said, yeah, I know that's where we have a difference of opinion. And I said, oh yeah, we do. But we love the Jewish people and we're, he was there with his scripture boxes and everything tied and all, you know, the, the curls and everything done the right way. And uh, it's just interesting to be there. There's a partial blindness that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I want to show you a key section. If you haven't seen this before, it's in Romans 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Go to Romans 11. This is the future of Israel. It's in a New Testament book, and it's explaining what happened to Israel and what will happen to her. Look at Romans 11, verse 25. Here's what Paul says. 
Romans 11, 25. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, or to be uninformed of this mystery, Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening or unbelief has happened to who? To Israel. Until, the idea is there will be a time when this is terminated, the fullness, it speaks of completion there, of the Gentiles, that's, that's nations that are not Jewish, has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer, or the Messiah, will come from Zion. That's that holy mountain that we talked about. He will do what? He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I will make an end of transgression. Back to Daniel 9. This is what the Messiah is going to do. Right now, even though Jesus, and this is some theological waters that people wrestle with, but in Calvinistic thought, some Calvinists believe in what's called limited atonement. They believe that Jesus' blood shed on the cross, his death on the cross, is limited to only those who believe. But 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. His blood, his death, is sufficient to cleanse every single human being that will ever live from their sin. But the key is, you must receive it. To as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become what? The sons of God. So you must believe to have the blood applied to you. You must receive the gift to be saved. If you have not received the atoning, propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, even though it's been paid for, it's not yours. Therefore, your sins are not dealt with, and therefore you will be under the judgment of God. You see, the only way sin gets atoned is if it's applied to you. And so you must, I must have a moment when I say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying on that cross for me. I believe, I receive, I ask you to save me, to cleanse me. I want to be born again of your Holy Spirit. That's when you get saved and not before then. So the gift is there but I must take it for myself. I must receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's when it, the atoning work of Christ gets applied to you. Everybody with me? And for Israel, the subject of our prophecy, they have largely not applied it. For many in Israel, sadly, Jesus is a joke. Uh, they, they don't want to give him another thought. They don't believe that he can be the Messiah. Therefore, they remain in unbelief, and in remaining in unbelief, they don't have the atonement for their sins. They don't have a temple anymore. There are no animal sacrifices. Not that that would matter anyway, because animal sacrifices can't cleanse you from your sin anyway. And so, um, here's the issue. And so, these six things in verse 24, to atone for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, all of these things can only happen once you know Jesus. Then your sins get atoned for. Look at, uh, go back to Daniel 9 and look at verse 24. 
keeping in mind that the main audience is the Jewish people. But So to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, how do you end up, are you righteous before God tonight as a Christian? Yes. How? By the blood of Jesus. By that new and living way. So the problem with Israel is that they were pursuing a law of righteousness and did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. The biggest problem with Israel is unbelief. You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And today, if you're in Christ, Jesus, uh, the Father, sees you as righteous because the work of the Son has been applied to your life. How many of you can remember the balloon within the balloon at uh, Disneyland? Did you ever get one of those? All right, so it didn't have the Mickey ears on it. And it was a balloon within a balloon. And if, and if you were young, you kind of walk, wow, wow. Anyway, well, this is a very poor illustration, but go with me. So your life is the balloon within the balloon. God the Father sees you through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. You have what's called imputed righteousness. Not only are you forgiven of your sin, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been applied to your account by faith. What theologians call the great exchange of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross and I came into a relationship with Him, His sacrificial death and righteousness goes to my account and all my sin was put on Him at the cross. Here's what it is, the great exchange of the cross. My sin went to him, his righteousness comes to me. Pretty good deal, ain't it? And by the way, it costs you nothing. It's solely work on the, uh, solely based on the finished work and the payment of Jesus Christ who from the cross said it is finished, which means paid in, not partially paid, Many of us are thinking of the bills that we have partially paid. Man, wow. Only 24 more easy payments and I'll be <laughs> done with that. But one payment was made once for all for those who are in Jesus Christ. My salvation shall be forever. My righteousness shall not wane. Isaiah 51.6 The days are coming. Jeremiah 23.5 declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely, do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which we will be called, the Lord our righteousness. That's Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Verse 24 also says that, they, that uh, prophecy and uh, they will seal up vision and prophecy. Flip over to Daniel 12 for a second. I believe there's a direct application here. We'll dig this out when we get there, but here's a preview. Daniel 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, one of my favorite guys in the Bible right there, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's Israel, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight 
That's what Daniel's getting now. Will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and what? Seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now some of you have heard that Daniel 12.4 means that in the last days there will be travel, airplanes and trains and automobiles and the like. We don't think that's what this means. It may well mean that in the last days, the Jewish people will be scouring the book of Daniel to understand the prophecies within it. I even heard someone recently say that, I don't know if it's all of Judaism or a part of it, pronounces a curse on those who read the book of Daniel. Where did that come from? And also, uh, Isaiah 53 they don't want to read that in the synagogues either. Why? <laughs> because it points directly to the Messiah. To anoint is Meshach, uh, back in Daniel 9. The most holy place is added by the translators. It could be the Messiah. Some see his baptism here. Uh, others see the anointing of the temple. So we're in Daniel 9, 25. So you are to know and discern, as Gabriel continues, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the word could be translated prince or king, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Now, I know you, some of you haven't been into school for a long time, but 62 plus 7 is, class, 69. Some of you will not speak no matter how easy I make it. <laughs> I've heard a guy speak recently, and he said, he would ask a question, and he would say, all right, how many of you, and people would raise their hands, and he said, all right, how many of you will not raise your hand no matter what I ask? And then people go, should I raise my hand now? Well, there's going to be these 69 weeks, and there's going to be, verse 25, from an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah, the king or the prince, there's going to be seven weeks plus 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks of years. So what, the way you have to think of it is 69 times seven. Okay? Come back to that in a moment. And it will be built again, Jerusalem will, with the plaza and the moat. New King James says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in times of distress. Now, i got to move quickly, but I'll tell you there are three major views of this decree. Either it was a decree issued by Cyrus in 2 Chronicles 36.23, which came in 538 B.C., which uh, had to do with the temple. And a second option is Artaxerxes I, issuing a decree in the seventh year of his reign, about 457-458 B.C., regarding the temple. Or a third possibility from Artaxerxes Langemanus, which came in 445 B.C., which had to do with the rebuilding of the temple, or excuse me, the city of Jerusalem, not the temple, but the city. And that's located in the book of Nehemiah. Just write this down for your notes. It's Nehemiah 2.1. How many of you have studied the book of Nehemiah? Raise your hand. How many of you won't raise your hand no matter what I ask? Okay. Um, so... Nehemiah 2.1, what's Nehemiah's burden? He wants to go back and rebuild what? 
the walls. What does he rebuild them in? What is it, 52 days? So he rallies the nation and bays it in prayer and gets the blessing of the king and goes back. That's the book that I believe the decree is issued in, and we know the date. And there's a book by uh, Sir Robert Anderson, The Coming Prince, which pinpoints this, but the date was 445 B.C. So the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, and it was issued uh, in 445 B.C. All right? So there's a mathematical prophecy here. If you take 69 weeks times 7, remember there are years, you get 483 years. From 445 B.C.? When do you think the Messiah entered the world and began his public ministry? Most believe from about A.D. 26 to 30, maybe 32, 33. So just think, 445. Remember, the end of the Old Testament is about 400. Malachi ends about 400, 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew called the intertestamental period. I know that this is a little technical, but stay with me. From 445, a decree was issued to rebuild the city until the Messiah, the Prince, comes will be 69 times 7 or 483 years. Let's throw up the first slide so people can get an idea of what this looks like. Okay, so uh, 445 B.C. in the spring is the prophecy. 62 times, uh, you have 1-7 plus the 62 times 7. That's a little bit confusing. We'll see that in the next verse. But taking together, it's 483 years. See the cross up there? That's when Messiah the, Messiah the Prince or the King comes. Then you have the church age and then, and then going on through there. Let's go to the next slide. This may uh, let you see the numbers a little easier. So the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus was on March 14th, 445 B.C. to let Nehemiah go back and rebuild the, uh, the walls. So you can see that the book of Daniel, that's the LXX, was written, uh, you know, the Septuagint was written 300 years earlier, so it has to be a valid prophecy is the idea there. From 445, this is from Chuck Missler, by the way. From 445 B.C., middle bottom, to 32 A.D. is 173,740 days. From March 14th to April 6th is 24 days. You count in the leap years, and you get 173,880 days, which is the exact number of the prophecy which takes you to April 6th, 32 A.D., which is the belief that that's the time that the Messiah Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's the prophecy. Now, there are people who debate the starting point and some other things and maybe the year zero, and so I will save you some headaches just to tell you there's some debate on this. But... I have no problem believing that God prophesied the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ to the very day. And remember that when uh, the, there's this messianic expectation in the temple from Simeon and, um, who is the woman in the temple? Anna. Um, remember that they probably have read this prophecy and understand that the Messiah had to arrive within this window, which very much narrows who the Messiah can be. 
because the prophecy is given for the window of time in the late 20s A.D. to the early 30s A.D. that that's when the Messiah had to come and, and do what he was going to do. Die for the sins of my people Israel and for the world. And so after the 62 weeks, 434 years, and some believe that you can take that first seven years as the career of uh, Nehemiah. Some believe you can take the first seven years plus the 62 to get back to the 69, sorry if I'm confusing you, by talking about the end of the Old Testament. You can wrestle with that one. But here's what we do know. From the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince, 173,880 days from Gabriel's lips to Daniel's ears to the book of Daniel. There it is. And this has given people chills because this is all future to Daniel. The first coming to Daniel is future. For us, we're looking back. But for Daniel, the first coming of Jesus is future. 500 years or so. Then after 62 weeks, 434 years, Daniel 9.26, some of you are going to come and need ibuprofen after this. The Messiah, the Anointed One, will be cut off. He'll be killed and have nothing. New King James, he'll be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, Gabriel speaking to Daniel, hundreds of years before, and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end, there will be war. Note it, Bible students. Desolations, plural, are determined. Now here's where I see a near-far fulfillment. The first coming of the Messiah, he was cut off, but not for himself. He was killed. Then the city of Jerusalem was destroyed about 40-plus years, or around 40 years later. In 70 AD, Titus Vespasian came in, his dad was called away, came in with Roman troops and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. Not one stone was left upon another. And Jesus, when he rides in on the triumphal entry and presents himself as king to Israel, riding on the foal uh, uh, of a colt, the donkey's foal, he says, if you had known in this very day the things which make for shalom, you should have known that I was coming on this day. You should have studied Daniel 9. But now, these things are hidden from your eyes. And then he begins to prophesy the fall of Jerusalem. And there are many who believe that the coming prince is not just about the Roman army uh, devastating Jerusalem in 70 AD. But a, there's a final fulfillment of this, and it's in verse 27. Let's take a look. And he, many see the most natural antecedent, the nearest preceding possibility. He will make a firm covenant, this prince. Uh, notice, let's just make sure we've got it down. So it's the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That can't be Jesus. That's got to be some coming uh, uh, ruler. Remember that the final antichrist seems to be from the Roman Empire or a revived Roman Empire. That's something that we've talked about. So he, most see the Antichrist here, will make a firm covenant with the many for what? For one week. Now we already know, Bible students, that's seven years. But in the middle of the week, he, 
And we believe the Antichrist here will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one, will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Very difficult language, but let me just summarize. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then Matthew says, Matthew 24, 15, let the reader understand. Loose interpretation. Get out of the house. Don't go back to get your coat. Don't go back into the city because these are the days of vengeance. And in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, don't have time to go there tonight. Jesus lays out the prophecy of the end of the age. And so the panorama of Daniel 9, 24, 27 through 27 takes us for Daniel's questions about his people to the first coming of the Messiah to the coming of the Antichrist and then the final second coming of Jesus Christ when he will uh, destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his coming. Father, we have uh, so much to just try to digest at this very moment. Uh, thank you for your people and their patience uh, moving through a, a, a more of a technical uh, section here. But thank you that this prophecy is amazing. And I believe that to the very day Gabriel told Daniel, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day when Messiah, to answer your question, Daniel, your Messiah is coming. Gabriel might say, I spend time with him every day. And I've been dispatched to tell you that there's hope for your people. Despite the Babylonian captivity, despite the questions, there's a deliverer. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Prince. He's the king. If you don't know him tonight, would you keep your head and heart bowed and just say, Lord, I, your Bible amazes me. I want to know who you are. I want to know this one that rode into Jerusalem to, to save me and this one who is coming again. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. Pray it if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead and I want that atoning work to be applied to my life. I want to be saved. Father, for those who may be crying out at this very moment in their hearts, would you save them? Would you just, just shower them with your love and your goodness and your truth? For all those who do know you, I just pray that we would dare to be Daniels and Danielles. <laughs> I pray, Father, that you'd find us strong and even when we're weak, we can be strong. Even when we're weary like Daniel, we can have hope. We can know that you know our name, that you hear our prayers, that you know our pain, and you know our cares. And I pray that your healing presence, your goodness, your loving kindness would shower your people. For those who have made decisions tonight to draw clear, uh, nearer to you, for those who have received you for the first time, for Christians who are fighting the good fight, may you strengthen your bride tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.